Welcome, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Top Insights from the Best podcast. My name is Zorian Rotenberg, and I'm the Chief Revenue Officer at Infotelligent, and I'm also your host today. Our podcast features CEOs, sales and marketing leaders, industry experts, and also investors, and you will hear their stories and unique insights about accelerating revenue and growing your companies better and faster. Also, this podcast is brought to you by Infotelligent, a sales and marketing platform that helps you win more sales and accelerate your revenue with buyer intent data powered by AI. Today with us is a book author named Chris Lytle, and this is a really great book called The Accidental Sales Manager. This is one of those books where you're taking notes almost on every page and uh, is the kind of book that you want to give to every one of your first line sales managers who've just recently been account executives and don't really have a lot of experience managing sales teams. With that, I'd like to thank Chris for joining us. And Chris, please tell us briefly about yourself and then we'll jump right in. Well, Zorian, I've been a, in sales and sales management for the last 30 to 35 years. I've been doing presentations all over the world, the English-speaking world mainly, and speaking to people about selling and sales management. And now I've sort of become the webinar king because there's no travel, but I'm still enjoying teaching and, and trying to remain relevant to the people who are out there struggling with this pandemic. And I think your book and your insights will be quite relevant. So let's dive right in. I think there are a number of things we wanted to share with the podcast listeners. And one of the biggest ones, of course, is the sales management trap that you talk about in your book. And I highly recommend this book to everyone. Let's get right in. Tell us a little bit about what this is and what are some of the issues from your perspective of becoming a first-time sales manager? The big thing is that most of us were minding our own business and selling up a storm. And then, bam, somebody came into our office, the boss said, how would you like to be a sales manager? And you're so flattered uh, that you say, oh, sure, I'll take it. And uh, they said, well, we, we need you to keep doing your old job. You're handling your list until you can develop some people to take it over. But we'd love to have you be the manager, too. So at this point in your career, you've got your old job and then you've got the new job of sales management. This happens in a lot of industries. Some industries are a little more advanced and they don't do that to people. But this non-management duties is really a full-time job. You're handling your own territory or your account list of accounts. You may be doing national account work, but then you've got to run the sales meeting and monitor other people's sales and work on communication up and down the organization. And those are what I call uh, level two or stage two management tasks. You run the meeting, you manage the accounts, you support the salespeople, but you're not really getting to stage three, which is the human resource development stage. And that's where you're staffing and training and coaching people. You're developing the people who develop your top line revenues. You're mentoring, you're doing recruitment, because if you don't staff up, you can't really suck back into your old job of uh, selling. And so people wonder why there's turnover. They wonder why there's not growth. It's because we're not developing the salespeople because we're busy developing sales. Yeah. Why do you think a lot of companies don't understand that challenge of a uh, sales account executive who was very successful at their sales job? And they're typically the ones that get the most visibility and they get promoted to first line managers. Why is it that a lot of companies, they don't create the kind of coaching and development or training for that first line manager that, that is so important? Yeah, I call the new sales manager the forgotten rookie because the, the people who promote 
salespeople into sales management may not be salespeople themselves. And and they think, hey, well, she can sell. She's really good at it. So she'll be able to teach people what she does. And that, you know, the, the paradox of management is you get paid for doing less of what you got promoted for doing more of. And what made you a great salesperson won't make you a great sales manager. So that's the problem is the, the skills that, you know, you were a lone wolf. Now you have to be a team player. You were just working on your accounts. Now you have to work with people and deal with their problems. It's a whole different skill set. And that's really a huge issue is that what got you to being a top biller won't make you a top sales manager. Yeah, what got you here will get you there. Yeah. Very true. And I agree with you. I think a lot of folks in technology, for example, who are not sales executives probably think that the best, you know, on the executive team outside of the chief sales officer, chief revenue officer, EVP of sales, outside of that role, they think that the best salesperson can just get promoted and then just like easily sort of sprinkle their magic dust, if you will, on all the other sales reps who will instantly become just as great as this one account executive was. But that just almost never happens. We all know very well that you can't just like easily replicate salespeople. We all know that having someone just copy someone else's style of selling, it's not the most direct path to winning deals. <laughs> And I guess my question is, why do you think there is a perception of folks who are not actually coming from the sales team about salespeople as if it's some kind of like, like there's so many misperceptions, but why do they think that it's so easy to just copy someone over? Why do you think that's happening? I think it's because they're hopeful and not very scientific about their approach. So you wish it were true. So you keep making the same mistake. But really, they really haven't broken down the sales job. Or really, If they haven't done the sales job, they think that someone who's really good at it must be good at teaching it. And those yeah. are two different skills. And, and, you know, I talk about the stages of learning a skill. And, and when you first start selling, you don't know that you don't know. Somebody, you don't know how hard it's going to be. You don't know what the objections are. And so you're kind of an unconscious, incompetent person. And then you spend a few days or weeks in sales and you go, wow, there's a lot of things I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> and you're consciously incompetent. And then you start getting some training and some experience and some seasoning, and you're consciously competent. You know you know what you're doing. So the first stage is you don't know what you're doing. And the second stage is you know you don't know what you're doing. You don't know that you don't know you know you don't know. And then you forget you know, and you just do it. You're out there selling. You're natural. You're, the right things come out of your mouth. And then they make you the sales manager. So now you don't know what you don't know about sales managing. We've got people, but you know everything about sales. So, you know, you've forgotten what you know about selling and you're just doing it. And then you've got to teach people who don't know that they don't know. And there's a tremendous amount of frustration because when you're a new sales manager and you're and you've just been promoted from sales, you go, why can't people get an appointment? That's easy. Why can't people close a deal? Anybody can close a deal. You wonder why your people can't be just like you because they're not you and because they haven't had four or five years of experience. And I used to, I remember when I was a new salesperson and my boss would say, well, just do that. But but he'd been doing it for 30 years. I didn't know what, you know, and then all of a sudden I have all the answers, but it took me 10 or 12 years to have all the answers. So it's, you know, it's time, it's skills. and, And it's the fact that, Sales managers are kind of the least likely to get any training. We've got to train the sales force, but we don't train that one person who's leading six, eight, ten people. 
And if that person were trained as a sales manager, not just as a salesperson, they would influence and coach and develop and mentor 10 more people. But they don't know that that's what they're supposed to do because they're back doing their old sales job and then trying to ride herd over this group of salespeople. Yeah, I totally agree. I think all the executives who run sales can agree together that the more important role is the sales manager, not the sales rep, in terms of leverage and how much value you can drive. So you have one sales manager, if they're good, they can make the rest of the team fairly good, right? Assuming you've hired good people in the first place. Sure. If you have one bad sales manager, it sort of ripple effects and trickles down to seven or 10 people under them. Right. And and yeah, you... You know, your goal as a sales manager is to make salespeople good at their jobs and make them sick. You become a successful sales manager when most of your salespeople are successful. So we really haven't been clear about what the job of sales management is in so many companies. And there's very few people above the sales level that can write that job description for the sales manager. Yeah. You just defined, you said a sales manager's job is to make the rest of the team better. Sure. I totally agree. I mean, if you're there and making the team worse, you shouldn't have that job in the first place. And if you're not there and the team is doing just fine, and when you bring you in, you're not making the team better, that's also a big problem. And we know that there are a number of different things that a sales manager should be doing as a first-line manager to make the team better. Let's start with coaching. You've defined coaching in your book. I'm looking at it here. You said that coaching is the process of letting a person being coached, the coachee, discover an answer for themselves instead of receiving one from his or her manager. So how would you, you know, and again, our listeners are like, you know, CEOs and CROs, chief sales officers, even some private equity investors who want to make their portfolio companies better. And we just talked about how a frontline sales manager is more important than all these sales reps you're telling your portfolio companies, or as a CEO, you're telling your CRO to hire. So the focus should be brought to the sales manager now. And now we have a couple that we just recently promoted. How do we make them good coaches? Well, we train them how to coach, but we also, you know, if if they had a coach when they were a, a salesperson, that would be helpful. We all, everybody needs a coach. I've had coaches for my speaking business. I've had life coaches. You need someone to bounce things off of. And you yeah. need someone to, to listen to you without judgment for a little bit and uh, let you kind of ruminate and get your ideas on the table without someone, you know, making hurry up sounds and wondering when you're going to come up with the answer. And so coaching is really a gift to the person that you're coaching and that you're willing to calm your own inner dialogue and listen and ask questions and not add too much value to their ideas. People rarely resist their own ideas. And so if you could get them to come up, well, we, my, my rule of coaching is if you're going to coach, because the difference between coaching and telling if someone said, you know, because someone comes into your office and says, got a minute, and there's no company in the world where a got a minute meeting lasts a minute. So I had one time I timed it. It was a 91-minute meeting. And my employee had said, Chris, you got a second? She she was too afraid to ask for a minute. So she asked for a second. And we had a really big problem with a, a client. And it took 91 minutes to sort this thing through. So when someone says, got a minute, and you've got reports to write, you're the man, you got goals to make, the tendency is to say, sure, come on in. What do you need? And, and as soon as they come up with their problem, you fix it for them. You say, here's what you do. Now, it doesn't build any buy-in. 
It doesn't build any motivation. Yeah. It just, yeah. Just, and it teaches, what does it teach people to do? Whenever I got a problem, I'll go in and ask go Zorian. And Zorian will fix it for me. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so it's the wrong you, lesson you're teaching. That's the wrong yeah, lesson. Yeah. So you teach people to keep, whenever you have a problem, come in and I'll fix it for you. And if you just go into this more of a, that's interesting. Tell me more about that. What have you thought of doing before this? Hmm. What might be the consequences of trying that? What if that doesn't work? What would you do next? And now you're just asking questions and letting the person come up with the answers. Now, if after seven or eight questions, they don't have any answers, maybe you have to tell them. But if you would just calm down and listen, ask them questions, let them come up with some solutions, then they walk out of your office going, yeah, I could do this. And it's their, and it's their solution. It's not your idea. It's their idea. People don't resist their own ideas, but they'll resist your idea. And so, That's hard to do. That's really hard to do. To I think you're you're referring to the Socratic method, right? Well, you could call it the Socratic method. It's it's you're pulling information out of people instead of pushing information into them. Now, it, it, sometimes with a rookie, you might have to do more telling than asking. Right. But as, right. But as people mature and they have life experience and sales experience. Asking questions honors them by saying, you, you probably, you don't have to tell them this, but you assume they probably have the answer inside of them. They've probably been ruminating on this. They've got some ideas. And if you'll let them express their own ideas, you honor them and you give them the gift of your time instead of hurrying them out of your office. And you, yeah. and you might think, well, but that's going to take more of my time and I'm busy. Um, <laughs> I'm super, you know, I'm slammed. Huh? But but all you that is your then, job. Yeah, that's really your job is developing the people who develop your top line revenues. And the way you develop people is coach them, not tell them. So I think that was one of the insights from the the latest Gallup book. It's it's the manager, is that everyone wants someone who's interested in their development. And if somebody can say, there's somebody at work that really cares about my development, they're going to stay with you months and maybe a year or two longer because your company is a place to grow and not just a place to work. And when I have a company that's a place to grow, I want to, you know, everybody, the millennials, the Gen Xers, they want a coach. They want a place to grow and not just a place to work. They want to feel like somebody cares about their development. I totally agree. You're talking about the Gallup. It's like 11 or 12 things that make someone really successful as an employee, right? Yeah, well, there was the 12 questions, but this, the most recent one, is just the big question is, is there someone at work that cares about my development? Right. And you want your manager to be that person. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No question about it, right? If, if the manager is not interested in your development, they're just not interested in you. And I can see a lot on the sales team for sure. It'll be very demotivating very quickly. A few other questions I wanted to throw out here. So we're really talking about the importance of the frontline sales manager. Actually, any sales manager, even a chief revenue officer is a sales manager. You're just much higher up in the organizational hierarchy, but you're still managing sales. You're managing sales vice presidents or sales directors. You're still managing the entire global sales team. So your sales manager, just a much more senior one at an executive level. So any sales manager at any level is very important because it all trickles down to the entire team. Yeah, well, your management style is infectious. And and so if my manager is an autocrat, I think, well, I ought to be an autocrat too. I ought to tell people and lay down the law and, you know, it's one of the That's an interesting point. That's an interesting observation. It's I've seen it again and again. Absolutely. It's, yep. 
So if this guy, if the boss is managing this way, that's what I ought to do too. And and that's not always true. We used to teach, as a leader, you have to be able to absorb 80% of the pressure that's on you from your boss. Yeah. And then distribute 20% of that pressure out to the people so that they can handle that much pressure. And then your your the sales manager, your managing has to absorb pressure from you. And then here's 20% of the pressure on this on the team. Because if everybody is get it done, get you know, if you're putting pressure on everyone, it's just a crazy company. Yeah. Um, the sales team will get burned out. No question about it. I mean, as a sales leader, your focus is a lot on not letting the board of directors pressure and the CEO pressure and the behind the doors executive management team discussions, any of that really impact your sales team negatively. You're right. Everything you're saying, I experienced myself on many levels as a CRO, as a head of sales, head of sales, technology companies where growth is typically expected to be 80, 100 or more percent a year, which is very hard to do for so many reasons. And you got to be so careful not to let that trickle down (laughs) to your team. But almost every board meeting, even if it's positive, there's always Hey, that was a great quarter or a great month, but that was that's already in the past. Yeah. What are we going to do next? So it's almost it always switches to like the next kind of pressure cooker discussion. I want to ask you a couple of questions here. We obviously talked about sales manager, and here we're really focused on the frontline sales manager as that forgotten rookie that you talk about. You're a unique guest because you really studied this role really well, and you yourself are a trainer and a coach to sales managers and to make great account executives and closers into great sales managers. It's a hard transition. But let's, before we go a little bit deeper into sales management, in your book, you also talk about the salespeople who add value, get more meetings, get more referrals, right? Tell me a little bit about this concept of adding value, because we talk about it a lot in SaaS, and I hear other people talk about it. What does adding value to a prospective buyer mean to you? Well, it means that your interaction, even if the person doesn't buy that moment, the person thinks, wow, that was a valuable meeting. I got an insight. I got a piece of data. I got some research that I didn't have. And this guy asked me a question that made me think. And I I like the term, did somebody go home from an eight-hour, 12-hour day and tell the story about this salesperson who called on me today? And holy mackerel, was that an interesting meeting. So are are you in your clients' dinner conversations? So that's what I always wanted to, you know, when, have you thought about this? What's going to happen 12 years from now when you don't take care of this? So you're you're asking, I was watching a Neil Rackham video the other day, and he said, great salespeople today ask questions about problems that are coming in the future, not problems that are here today. And he, he told the story, he said, one buyer said, if I fall into a pit, there's 50 people that can sell me a ladder, but there's only one in 50 that can help keep me from falling in the pit. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's so, great. you know, so the, the person who, yeah, yeah the, the, the great salespeople are keeping you from falling in the pit, not just trying to solve the problem you have right now. And talking to you about a, a bigger future and how are you going to get there? Because if we just talk about what problems we have today and the lack of budget, and there's oh yeah, there's a pandemic and I can, my checkbook is frozen, then you know nothing's going to happen. So great salespeople add value with information, good questions and research that makes people really grateful that they had the meeting. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I raised that question just because I was recently on a podcast and I was asked a similar question. 
what does that in value mean? Because there's not enough observation from the host was that there's not enough value being added in sales today. And I think if you look at statistical sampling of all the sales reps that reach out today, particularly in high tech and SaaS, I would agree. I think majority of them are not really coached well enough to be effective during their prospecting or even actual selling process, which includes qualifying and discovery. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of room for improvement. You know, you talked about someone going home and telling someone about a great salesperson <laughs> who called them that day. That almost never happens for a number of reasons. And I know you're obviously telling a story, but there are some times when you share with your sales teams, like as a CRO, I've shared over the past many years with my sales teams when I had a great cold call or somebody did a great job running a sales meeting where I was looking at a demo or trying to learn more about their product. And those are very rare. And I don't ever blame the sales rep. Like if you look at LinkedIn, a number of people, they they criticize the sales profession and sales reps and talk about how much they don't like sales reps called calling them. I mean, there, there are a series of posts like that you can find every month. And I always kind of really think more about the manager, the coach, and I feel like it's their fail, not the sales reps, right? Because the manager is not coaching that rep effectively to avoid such mistakes. Uh, and I know you'll agree with that. By the way, I want to transition to a couple of other questions. So One of the things that I'm always very interested in is building high-performing teams, championship teams, right? Winning teams. I look to sports, sports coaches to learn how they do it because there are a lot of analogies and a lot of things you can emulate, if you will. It's a different profession, but there are a lot of performance-based similarities. So one of them over here in your book is about the mistake of unrecruiting which is kind of the initial stages of building a high-performing teams. And it talks about industry experience as the number one hiring criteria. And you talk about it being a big mistake. And I'm big on that. I really support that because I've always, I've hired a lot of people without paying any attention to industry experience. And they've been incredibly successful. So why do you think so many people focus so much and over-index on industry experience or actually even so many other factors that in the end actually are not representative or indicative of final outcome of building a winning team of reps that over-attain their quota? Let me just go back for one step and I have 924,000 miles on United Airlines and I didn't quite get to a million in my travels of doing live seminars. But the kinds of people I would always see on airplanes were coaches. I remember Bob Knight and Denny oh, Crum, no Lou Holtz. They were always coming back from a recruiting trip. And so that's what great coaches do. I am very they, jealous of you. I should have been on those <laughs> flights. <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk to these guys and you realize that when you've got great people, you don't have to be such a great coach. You've got uh, blue chip athletes who will win with almost anybody. So, but yeah. the thing about industry experience is it's a crutch. People say, well, maybe he, he knows where the bodies are buried. He got a book of business. He's got some contacts. Therefore, I won't have to coach him and train him and develop them. Yeah. And, and really, you know, what, what I look for, and, and it's my bias, I'm sure, but achievers, high achievers need achievement. And, and they have been achieving ever since they were in first grade or before. Maybe yeah. they want attention. They want praise. They want rewards. And they have drive. It, it, it's an achievement drive. That So the question I love to ask is, tell me about the 10 biggest wins you've had in your life. Mm. I could, I'm not going to tell you my 10 biggest wins, but I remember (laughs) my home run in Little League. I remember the diamond. I remember the bat I was using. I remember I hit it over center field. 
and it was my first home run. And I was like, oh, I did it. And and then there was, you know, then there was more and more things. So yeah. if, if someone says, well, 10 biggest wins, you mind if I get back to you on that? <laughs> then you, you probably know they're not going to need, need to achieve. And it, it's that need to prove yourself over and over again. Okay, yeah, I wrote a book. Now I got to write another book. You know, it's like, okay, I got this. I'm in this Hall of Fame. I'm I, so I got to get in another Hall of Fame. So yeah. I it, hear it's, you. It's I'm you know I, I just turned seventy and I I'm still thinking about you know how can I make this website better and how can I do this and so I think it's important that you find that achievement history because if, if you give them a good company and a good product to sell, they're going to figure out how to do it because that's what they need to do. Yeah, totally. I've hired a number of, at the junior level, a number of reps that have never even had sales experience, never mind technology industry experience. Some of the best reps that ultimately went on to be leaders as well that, that I've had on my teams. You know, Juan was a actually a defensive coordinator at Framingham State College. He's great. He never had any sales experience and he couldn't get a job in SaaS and sales. But you could see that drive that you're referring to. The drive was there. And you could see you're, you're hiring someone intelligent. Warren Buffett talks about he hires for three things, which is intelligence. He wants someone smart. Get stuff done, which is the energy. He talks about energy, having the energy, the drive. And third is integrity. You don't need to overcomplicate it. And I think I've never really overindexed on the industry experience. And I think people are definitely making a mistake in thinking that you can just bring some playbook from another company and bring it to this company and it's going to work the same way. It's never the case. When you're hiring sales managers and sales leaders, I would argue you're hiring them for their decision making. So you want to get a smart person who can mm -hmm. get it done right with integrity, just like Warren Buffett says, who makes really good decisions because copying some playbook from another company is, is a lot of times, not always, potentially a recipe for disaster, right? So the contexts are very different. But anyway, so a couple more things. I know we have about eight to 10 minutes left in this episode. And I wanted to ask you about what are some of the other key insights that you had both in your book? And, and again, I, I want to show this to everyone. The Accidental Sales Manager, really fantastic book, rich, really rich with insights. If you have a lot of account execs who want to become sales managers, or you have frontline sales managers who have not been developed and coached at your company to run sales teams, please do me a favor, go out and get this book. And uh, Chris did not ask me to promote it, uh, but I do genuinely think it's a great read and very insightful. So Chris, just back to this, and you obviously wrote other books, The Accidental Sales Professional. But what are your like couple more interesting insights that you can share with our listeners about having successful sales managers, or not only from your books, it could be from your books, but also from your experience working with a lot of very successful companies? Well, I think everything I'm reading, and I'm trying to go, I'm looking at the artificial intelligence now and what's going on with that. And was it Gong.io is doing their recording sales calls and I, I don't yeah. I don't think they're learning anything that's particularly unknowable but without an artificial intelligence but the sale is one in the discovery phase and and one of the things that we teach people to pitch and they got their decks and they got all these things but it's the questions and the fact that we understand someone else is what really makes us successful as a salesperson not because we make them understand our software success it's just like I understand what you're trying to accomplish and here's how to go about that. And, and yeah. people people buy from us because we understand them 
not because we make them understand what it is we're selling. So the discovery phase is where the sale is really made. And that's where this guy gets me. This person, this salesperson understands what I'm trying to do. Yeah. The other thing, you know, the other thing that I'm big on is thinking in terms of engagement metrics. I, I even, I don't, I don't even think I put it in the book, but it's, I trademarked the term sales pipeline angioplasty because your your pipelines get clogged with dead and dying deals. It's, you know, it's like your arteries or your, your pipeline is clogged. <laughs> and one of the things that, one of the reasons your pipeline gets clogged is we put these we call people who oh like, yeah I'm interested call me in the you know call me next spring I'm interested call me next quarter and so you put those people in your projections they're interested instead yeah. of engaged so, so I, yeah. I you know, we used to call them prospects and suspects I like to call them prospects and information seekers there's people that are just making you jump through hoops and yeah they'll call me call me next quarter I'm interested and there are other people. If you say to someone, I'm happy to do that, are you willing to work with me on a calendar basis? Or can we get this on the calendar, even if it's next quarter? What are you doing on January 8th? I guess I could meet with you then. You got anybody else you're meeting with? <laughs> no, I'm pretty open on January 8th. Okay, well, let's get that on our calendars. So now at least I've got somebody, I've got my name on somebody's calendar instead of, yeah, just call me in the, in the first quarter. So that, that's, that's what I call engagement metrics. How many people have you on their calendars for a next step? And, and that's, those are the prospects. The rest of the people are, in, are information seekers, and they don't belong anywhere near your projections. Yeah, I agree with you. I always tell my sales teams that if you don't have next steps after a meeting, either go back or you might as well close the opportunity out. I mean, not obviously as drastically, but you got to have mutually agreed next actions there. You also talked about information seekers. I, I always talk about that in the context of, are they interested or are they just curious? Right? <laughs> like, what are you trying to tell me? Are they really interested? Like, show me why. What did they say that is driving their interest, right? You can't just cater to everyone who's just interested because you don't have enough hours in the day and days in the, yeah. in the selling month to close your deals and hit your quota. No, that was very good. And I really like the sales pipeline angioplasty. I have a whole <laughs> process for troubleshooting and pressure testing and diagnosing your opportunities and purging bad deals from the pipeline. I actually came up with a funny acronym that I use because it's so memorable to the sales team in a facetious, fun way that, that we use it often enough to, to help us go through the pipeline with a fine comb. But I call it UFOs. And I say, beware of UFOs. And people are like, those who don't know me, they're like, what do you mean? That's silly. But it's unlikely and failing opportunities. Yeah. This Is there a real challenge they're trying to solve? What is the priority on this? Are they engaged? Did they come through in their micro commitments through the selling process? Are they really truly engaged? Why? There's so many different ways to look at that. And then there's also real numbers and KPIs and metrics like, is this deal stolen? How many times did we change the or push the closing date, the expected forecasted closing date? How many times did we change it in the forecasting category? Uh, what's our win cycle? Is our win cycle you know, 45 days, 60 days? Then this deal has been in the pipeline for 120 days. That's way past your winning cycle. And it's now approaching our loss cycle. So time kills all deals. So you got to look at all of these different factors in the context of what you said of sales pipeline angioplasty and the context of UFOs, <laughs> unlikely and failing opportunities. 
Yeah, well, um, people people get hooked on hopium. You know, they they, they hope that it's gonna. There's some just keep them. You know, just keep them in the pipeline, and maybe sometime they'll they'll buy. And instead um, of making the hard decisions, couldn't agree more with you. We're kind of coming to an end here, but but I would wrap it up and say that all of the things you and I just spoke about in the past few minutes, you can multiply that by a hundred or a thousand, maybe even <laughs> order of magnitude more that a good sales manager and a good sales executive and thus a sales team's coach should know and be able to lead the team to winning deals through this knowledge, but coaching in the way that you said of not telling people, but getting them to this quintessential truth of how they're going to win deals and grow and hit their quota. This is really great. I mean, the concepts like the forgotten rookie, it is so prevalent. And I see this a lot in the tech industry that we see, you know, companies I advise, the companies I invest in, or that I see some of my friends work with, they spend so much time talking about sales training, right? Training the sales team, which is certainly very important. But to your point of the forgotten rookie, the, the frontline managers have never had any management and, and training on how to coach and lead their teams, which is a real shame because, as we said earlier, they are the real levers. It's not the yeah. sales reps. The more important role is the sales manager, who in turn builds up a team of high-performing sales reps. Anyway, so to wrap it up, Chris, this was great conversation. How do people find you? And if companies want to hire you to train their sales managers or make them better coaches or to be a coach to their sales teams, how do they find you? Well, my main website is instantsalestraining.com. And uh, my email is chris.lytle, L-Y-T-L-E, at instantsalestraining.com. But you can get me on LinkedIn. You can uh, contact me through the, the website, instantsalestraining.com. And I'd uh, love to hear from you. Well, great. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. I really enjoyed this chat and really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Zorian. Thank you. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye. Mm -hmm.